Ari Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of that 401k podcast. This week we're going to talk about absurd 401k plan sponsor uh, facts that are 100% true. Um, it's just one of those things, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about. But of course, first things first, that 4 for further information on all our live events. Uh, in person, we'll be in Las Vegas, the New York, New York Hotel and Casino. Uh, that will be uh, on uh, the Las Vegas Strip, obviously. That's on uh, Friday, January 21, 2022. Following week, that 4K National Virtual Conference, the 28th and 29th. I'm sorry, the 27th and 28th. I'm getting all that confused. Um, to be part of the virtual conference, it's just $20.22 to be a part of the action. Um, and then, of course... Talking about live events, uh, the last book one is June 24th in Miami. Uh, we will have uh, more information about that event. We'll have the website uh, live soon uh, to sign up. And we will get more, uh, as we get closer uh, to the new year, we'll certainly have sign-up pages and more information on these events. Kind of silly, you know, we're going to do Charlotte next October and uh, New Orleans in, in, in November. Kind of silly now to uh, set up a website. I mean, our friends at Napa does don't don't have sign up pages for uh, ASPA twenty twenty two yet. So, um, you know, we, we just want the information to get out there. We're still, you know, trying to figure out what days. Uh, I'm still waiting here back on San Diego. Got pricing on Oakland. I don't know if we'll do that. Uh, problem is, is that if we don't do Oakland, San Francisco is very very pricey. Uh, I even looked at Santa Clara. That didn't really work out. So we'll see what happens. Um, and uh, just a matter of, you know, finagling the calendar. And, of course, COVID is still an issue. Um, I had a discussion with somebody in the industry uh, about concern about these live events. And, uh, you know, I, I know certain larger national events, you can see in the pictures uh, how much emptier it is than usual. And that's just the consequence of the pandemic, uh, not a consequence on, on the people holding these events. And... Uh, that's really the pause for concern. You know, are we going to have, you know, I'd love to schedule nine events next year. Are we going to have the crowd to justify that? And we'll see. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, of saying, you know, I, I know that January we're going to have Las Vegas. We're not going to have another event until at least April. So that still gives me five, six months to figure out and, uh, get the uh, sponsors and whatnot. So, um, again, uh, this week's topic, absurd 401k plan sponsor facts that are 100% true. I kind of love these. Um, it reminds me when I was a kid, Larry Anderson, who was the guest of our Philadelphia conference way back in 2018 already. Hard to believe, but that was, Philadelphia was the third conference. And it was kind of weird. We did in November at Citizens Bank, and there was no ball game, obviously. But Larry Anderson was a funny guy, still is. And he would ask these crazy questions. Why do we park on driveways and drive on parkways? Why do we have expiration dates on sour cream? Which, of course, reminds me of, you know, today, uh, cigarettes are sold in gas stations, even though smoking is prohibited there. Uh, fat chance and slim chance are the same thing. Phonetic isn't spelled the way it sounds. And it's just interesting that in the retirement plan business, there's a lot of absurd 401k plan sponsor facts that are just 100% true. Uh, it's just, you know, really interesting of the issues that, uh, that you have. Um, one of the absurd facts 
that is true that no matter what a plan sponsor does, they're always on the hook for liability. Uh, plan sponsors are plan fiduciaries. Of course, as I always say, they have the highest duty of care in law and equity. Being a fiduciary is about being responsible for the time plan assets and plan participants. So, you know, they have obviously more responsibility in holding someone else's money than holding their own. As part of running a retirement plan, plan sponsor needs to hire qualified and experienced plan providers that will handle the bulk of the work in the day they running the plan. The problem is, is obviously, is that while a plan sponsor can delegate to um, plan providers, like a TPA and whatnot, they are still on the hook for liability, which is something that just they don't understand. Even if they're hiring somebody who's a 338 and a 320, uh, 338, 316, where they're delegating all of the fiduciary liability that comes with that component of the plan, um, they're still on the hook. Um, I don't care what anybody says. You hire a 338 provider and there's a second coming of Bernie uh, Madoff, uh, they will be on the hook for liability. Same thing with 316 administration. You know, it goes back to the joke that I always use all the time uh, about um, Ron, you Dangerfield back to school. You know, when his son wants books that were highlighted, and Ronnie Dangerfield says, well, what if, you know, the person highlighting was a maniac? And the same thing with hiring a 316, 338 provider. What if you hire somebody who's a maniac as a plan sponsor? You cannot, uh, you know, uh, say that you're, you know, not, not liable. You, you hire these people. You may not be liable in the fiduciary capacity, but ultimately still on libel. Um, you know, in Revenge of the Sith, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi said that only the Sith speak in absolutes. And uh, I really believe that anyone that, you know, advertises or claims that a plan sponsor can truly eliminate all liability is just, you know, absolutely wrong. Plan sponsors can always minimize the liability. They can never fully eliminate it. Next absurd for 1K plan sponsor facts are 100% true. This always gets me going because uh, I, I think it's one of those things that I just don't enjoy. And I think that that's the idea that if higher pay people defer more, uh, plan sponsors obviously have a problem. Uh, I have a problem with the notion that anybody in New York, in the New York metropolitan area, that making $120,000 more in any way is a highly compensated employee. I will say that having been a law firm associate, making that kind of scratch back in the day, you know, 12, 13 years ago, even then I didn't think I was highly paid. Um, you know, costs of the cost of living uh, in New York and any huge metropolitan area, Boston, I'm looking at you, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Um, you know, these are areas where $120,000 or whatnot doesn't really make you rich. And the problem is, is that the ADP test, which, you know, test for discrimination of salary deferrals, um, the problem is, is that, you know, an HC is somebody who makes 120K. You know, 120K in some part of, you know, middle America may do very well when housing is, you know, you can buy a mansion for, you know, two fifty, three hundred thousand dollars dollars $300,000. I just... You know, I have a problem with that. I, I think that the HC limit, the number is artificially small. Uh, also, uh, discrimination on the ADP test, if it failed, you know, shows that it failed, it doesn't really mean that the plan sponsor didn't allow lower paid employees to participate. It's that 2% clip that always, you know, the rates. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is somebody making $125,000 obviously has more money to defer than somebody who makes thirty-five. It's just the nature of the business. 
but you know, it all comes back to what I always say: the Internal Revenue Code isn't about fairness. I have a friend of mine who's a tax attorney in Texas. Um, we get into it about politics quite a bit. Uh, he tries to point himself as a uh, immunologist, um, and I'm of the belief that uh, I didn't go to school for that, so therefore I'm not going to give my two cents about it. But anyway, his big thing is talking about fairness and the Internal Revenue Code, and there's nothing fair about the Internal Revenue Code. Until we go to a flat tax system, it's not fair. Uh, how's it not fair? Well, I'm sitting here in my house. I can deduct the mortgage interest on it. If I rented the same house, paid the same amount of money, I cannot. Um, you know, we have a system in place that, you know, favors certain things, cer certain items. Uh, obviously, somebody who makes, as we speak, somebody who makes the bulk of their money through capital investments, uh, capital gains, gets better treatment than somebody who, you know, works nine to five, working for an employer in terms of uh, taxation. Um, that's, you know, that's the issue. Uh, I'm not suggesting that, you know, the 401k limits, the ADP test is eliminated in favor of some universal availability requirement. The reason I don't want to eliminate that and advocate a universal availability requirement, because I know that if we eliminate the ADP test, that means we eliminate safe harbor contributions. And I, 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 I care about the lower paid people as well. Uh, I just think it's kind of silly that we have this artificially low HC limit, uh, but that's my, my two cents. One, our, uh, one of the absurd facts that that's true, mutual fund costs are a big consideration. When a plan sponsor meets with a potential plan provider, such as a financial advisor or TPA, they're presented with fees that these providers charge. Providers, uh, you know, uh, providers that are being hired by the plan sponsor will have to provide the plan sponsor with annual fee disclosures. Um, the problem that I've always seen over the past 20 some odd years, less so now, is that they don't emphasize the cost and the investment options of the plan. I was I grew up at time in the retirement plan business when you literally there I go, there I, I overuse that word literally. You will have uh, in back in those days, you used to have TPAs with a straight face tell you that a plan with index funds is more would be more expensive than actively managed funds. And those were in the days when there was no fee disclosure. And those were the days when nobody cared about uh, costs of uh, mutual funds, especially in the late 90s. You know, when, when Janus funds, Janus 20 was, you know, returning 100% or whatever it was in 98, 99, nobody cared if Janus was charging 200 basis points. Um, I was in the Kaufman funds, which I, I forget who bought it now. I don't think it was American funds. It was somebody else who bought it, I think. Uh, but anyway, the Kaufman funds, you know, when I was in, had a crazy 1991, and they did heavy advertising uh, to really push it. It was a small company, and then it became a, a small company fund, then it became a mid-cap fund. And they were charging 269 basis points, you know, including the 12B1 fee. The problem, you know, obviously is that plan sponsors um, don't know, still to this day, even with fee disclosure, don't know the cost of their investments. Um, and it's one of the more important duties they have as a plan fiduciary. Mutual funds, you know, obviously, you know, mutual funds cut into plan retirement gains and plan sponsors have been sued for keeping too many expensive funds in their lineup when they're, you know, less expensive options, uh, including 
a different share class that's available. You know, and, and we see that in, in larger cases when large plans neglect to understand that a cheaper institutional share class was available. Next on the list is uh, participant direction investment doesn't truly eliminate uh, and shield the plan sponsor from liability completely. Um, one of the reasons that uh, we had the push towards self-direction, again, I was in the 1990s. Technology allowed easier, well, it, it allowed a simpler way of directing investments for plan participants. They could use the phone, and then a couple years later, they were able to use the internet. And uh, mutual fund companies were pushing it, um, and TPAs were pushing it, and their advisors were pushing it. And one of the selling points of that was, you know, if you have participant direction investment, you're going to be shielded from liability. Not true. Not true at all. It isn't a, uh, a full shield from liability. Plan sponsors still to this day have some work to do when it comes to participant-directed plans in the 4.4c. You know, I could go ad nauseum about my old law firm again, which I'll bore you to death with. But they have to provide plan participants with enough information to make informed investment decisions. That also means that there has to be a prudent process in place by plan sponsors in the formulation of the investment options of the plan. You know, picking, having a fun lineup from, you know, in, today in 2021 and, and having a lineup that hasn't been changed in 23 years, you know, a lot has changed. You know, Janus 20, I don't, I don't follow mutual funds anymore. I dabble more in stocks and ETFs. But I would imagine that Janus 20 isn't the return getter it was in 1998, 1999. I remember being working for a TPA and having issues when the fund closed to new investors and trying to get plan sponsors in on the action for Janus 20. And, uh, you know, what was great in 1998, not so great in 2021. So a prudent process in place means, you know, working with a financial advisor, developing investment policy statement, reviewing the fund options on a timely basis. Um, and again, uh, providing enough information for plan participants to make informed investment decisions. That's what's going to shield the plan sponsor from liability. It's not all or nothing. It's also a sliding scale. So if you, you know, if a plan sponsor doesn't provide information to participants, but you know is prudent on the selection investments, they will get some sort of liability protection, not uh, not not complete. So you know, these are obviously you know some of the issues that you know people you know, that plan sponsors don't really understand. So, um, you know, ERISA 404C, I think it's important for plan participants to understand that, you know, it's not a blank contract or protection or a suicide pact for plan sponsors. A plan sponsor really needs to understand uh, their duties and potential liability if they offer, you know, participant direct investments. Last but not least, in this business, fiduciary is marketed in a way that may not mean what you think it might mean. And, uh, you know, plan sponsors are fiduciaries, so are fiduciary, uh, I'm sorry, so, so are financial advisors that take on that role because they have to. Uh, the problem is with using the word fiduciaries that implies that someone will undertake a fiduciary role, but sometimes they aren't. For example, uh, always gets me in the trouble, but there are a lot of insurance companies out there that still service TPAs and they offer that fiduciary warranty. You know, they will indemnify plan sponsors if they're sued for a breach of their fiduciary duty, uh, and it's in very narrow circumstances. Uh, such So narrow that no plan sponsor ever gets sued for it. Plan sponsors have a better chance of getting struck by lightning 
than being sued where the terms of the warranty will kick in. Uh, the meaningless of the fiduciary warranty can be explained uh, this way, which uh, national director, national DCIO, a certain mutual fund company told me years ago. The meaningless uh, of the warranty is if insurance companies are in the business of making money by insuring you know, work or insuring lives and whatnot, what does it say if the insurance companies are giving a fiduciary warranty away for free? If they're giving it away for free, that means they have no, you know, fear that it's ever going to get called on. The use of the word fiduciary is great for marketing, but it may be a game of bait and switch if plan sponsors assume their provider is servicing in fiduciary capacity when they're not. So that's why it's important that plan sponsors review their contracts with their plan providers to make sure that, uh, you know, it will delineate whether their providers will serve in fiduciary capacity or not. Uh, I hate surprises. That's what I will always say. So I think it's important that uh, I think it's important that uh, they realize that uh, you know um, they may be promised one thing and a plan sponsor is providing next. So uh, that's it. Um, it's a short episode this week. Sorry. Election day coming up. I usually record these on a Tuesday. This week I'm doing it on a Monday. Kids are off. So that means, unfortunately, I have to be off. So um, hope you enjoy uh, this week's episode, uh, truncated episode. And of course, go to that 4 kcom for further information on all our live events, including Las Vegas. Looking forward to going back on the strip. Everybody knows I love Las Vegas. I don't like to gamble, but I love Las Vegas. So looking forward to that. And um, hope you're you know a part of that as well as the virtual conference the following week. Take care. Bye.